Welcome to The Impossible Network, a podcast about the stories of ordinary people living extraordinary lives, how their upbringing affected them, how creativity fueled them, and how serendipity guided them. One of the first questions we get when we come into a community, no matter how sophisticated or educated the community member, doesn't matter if they never went to elementary school or have a graduate degree, where do you get your money? That's because people understand that money corrupts. This week's guest is Natalie Bridgman-Fields, a fierce advocate and pioneer in international human rights, environmental law and founder of Accountability Council. Her ethical foundation was formed at an early age by parents that instilled in her a deep sense of inequity in the world. However, it was 1998 that her journey and fight for social justice was sparked by a serendipitous siren call to action from witnessing a group of indigenous women in Chile being arrested while peacefully resisting the construction of a dam on their critical water source. Since then, Natalie has dedicated her career to holding the companies and institutions behind harmful projects like mines, agribusiness and wind farms accountable for abuse. After spending a decade as an attorney for and partner to communities around the world, Natalie founded Accountability Council in 2009 with a simple aim to empower communities to defend their rights through a unique avenue for justice. In the last 10 years, Accountability Council has worked with nearly 40 communities around the world, from farmers in northeast Haiti to nomadic herders in the Mongolian South Gobi Desert to fisherfolk in coastal Kenya. In addition to providing direct legal support to communities, Accountability Council works to address the systemic problems that perpetuate harmful projects through policy, advocacy and research. Knowing they cannot tackle such complex problems alone, the organisation is also a leading voice in the global movement for accountability in international finance. The impact of Accountability Council's unique model has been recognised through awards from Echoing Green to the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation. I hope you enjoy this interview with Natalie Bridgman-Fields. Welcome to the Impossible Network, Natalie. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, let's just start with what you are. You're a social entrepreneur. Actually, let, yes. let's, let's start with what is social <laughs> entrepreneurship? It's something about applying innovation to solving societal and environmental problems? Exactly. Finding a problem that, that uh, there's a vision for a solution that's possible and noticing that there's no one else working on that and finding a way to create allies and make that change in the world. Great. Now that we've established what social entrepreneurship is, your social entrepreneur journey, your innovation story, your mission, and what you're doing with Accountability Council is truly fascinating. But before jumping into the specifics of it, I'd like to understand what serendipitous event set you on your journey. Or was it a plan from early childhood to do this? It was a little bit of both. Uh, I would say my, my parents very early on exposed me to issues of deep inequity in society. So I was kind of from birth aware of these major global challenges and the U.S. role in those challenges. So I had some exposure at an early age to being attuned to watching out for the environment around me to see inequity. But there was a very serendipitous moment that happened in 1998. I was doing an environmental internship in Santiago, Chile, and totally unrelated to the internship, these three journalists that I met, very young women, said, come on in the back of the uh, the Jeep, and we're going to go eight hours south from Santiago to the Alto Bio Bio, this beautiful river, and they're about to put up a dam on this river, and these Mapuche indigenous people are going to be protesting. Come with us. We're going to be reporting on it. Uh, to come witness. Come bear witness. So I hopped in the back of the Jeep, and eight hours later, you know, we, we were there, and, and the course of that event at the BOBO really changed the course of my life. Okay, what what happened at the BOBO? Well, I saw the people who lived there for many, many, many generations. These are the indigenous Mapuche people, Mapuche Pehuenche people, protesting the very moment that 
um, the military police were arriving with the bulldozers to take their land from them. And instead of uh, living sustainably along this riparian river valley, they were going to be dam-affected, displaced people. Um, and so they were organizing to try to prevent that construction because they knew that they had no other option. This was it. It was, it was their life or um, stop the project. So they held hands and were tear-gassed at close range wow. with the military police you know, arriving on them. And I was the only foreigner on the hill at that moment. Witnessing it. Witnessing it. And one of them called to me saying, Natalia, it's your government financing this project through the World Bank, a literal call out to action. Um, so that was deeply moving and compelling. And I, I felt an enormous responsibility as an American, as someone with education. And I had just, and this is the serendipity of it, just learned for the last semester in school um, about an accountability office tied to international finance, because this was a, a dam financed from abroad by the World Bank. The exact mechanism that was created at the World Bank to receive community complaints was available to these people. Um, huh. So it was it was one of these circumstances where I just had happened to have learned about these set of tools and then witnessing this momentous and heartbreaking <laughs> event in the lives of these people and then the next generations of their families. And you were, you were training as a lawyer at this time? This was as an undergraduate. So ah. I then, that was one of the things that sparked my interest in going to law school and learning about what tools are available for communities like this to be able to grapple with these huge imbalances of power between big corporations and governments and institutions and people who are often the poorest of the poor who bear the brunt of projects that are financed from abroad. What was the, sort of the event from that, that obviously monumentous event in your life to then setting up Accountability Council? What was the story in between? Yeah, it was a little bit circuitous. So I, I knew I wanted to work on these issues of justice and, and balancing of power and the human rights and environmental issues there, but I didn't exactly know how. Um, so that was in, in 1998. And then after that, I, I went to law school. And my first summer after being a law student, I was at UCLA and I came all the way back to DC and took um, a role as a consultant at the World Bank's very first accountability office, the first Changing accountability the office inside. that's yeah. ever existed. <laughs> and I wanted to see if it worked. I wanted to see how the bank responded to it internally. I wanted to see what it could deliver for people who are affected by the bank. And it was an incredibly compelling realization that this, this institution had the power to let the World Bank's board of directors, some of the most powerful people in the world in terms of changing the lives of the poor, hear directly from the people they'd impacted. And that was something very unique in all of international law. It doesn't exist for the most part in litigation as a strategy, and I was studying to be a lawyer. So I was really hooked on this idea of these, these non-judicial, these complaint offices, able to provide a level playing field for people to, to dialogue about their rights and issues of, of their mutual interest. So, Yeah, that being, only takes us through law school. Yeah, but being, yeah, but being, <laughs> the story goes on. Being a trained lawyer, obviously, yeah. you would, naturally you would think litigation would be the route to yeah. supporting and, and Oh, and was I tempted? I went that people. direction, indeed. Mm -hmm. So after after law school, I was a litigator. I started at a private law firm, which uh, allowed me an incredible training ground, an opportunity to pay back my law school debt and my undergraduate debt. But most importantly, it provided me an opportunity to do some incredible cutting-edge human rights litigation, mm -hmm. pro bono. At that yeah, I was going to say, I would expect it was probably pro it bono. It was pro yeah. bono, and it was one of the first cases ever uh, brought about the Pinochet era in Chile, and it was a crimes against humanity case that went all the way through a jury trial, all the way through appeal, and delivered a verdict uh, for the plaintiffs uh, on crimes Wonderful. against humanity. And how, how many years? That took, that was a, almost a four-year-long endeavor, and then I left and was a private practice lawyer for a couple of years after that doing human rights and environmental litigation. And through all that, what I learned was that these, these victories, these court victories that I had, which, which are very rare, so I was exceedingly fortunate to have been party to a number of them, um, they took 
millions of dollars, many, many years, sometimes a decade or more, just to get to the substantive issues of a case, fighting through where the case should be brought and which jurisdiction and which country under which rules. And then finally, you'd get to the substance. And meanwhile, the, the plaintiffs, the victims in these cases were not in the driver's seat. They were getting updates from the lawyers every couple of years. So um, while those victories are important and for setting precedent, and I think the rule of law needs to be better established so that people have greater opportunities to litigation, what I learned from all that and in 2009, why I started Accountability Council, is because the community is harmed by international investment, by these international financial flows. They just need better options. They need a better set of tools that can more immediately address their concerns and do so in a way that can can really respond to what they need. It's not often cash compensation or simply an injunction. It's often way more complicated. Uh, and the mechanisms set up to receive their complaints through international finance allow for a much more creative set of tools to, to come to bear to solve some of these problems. And I suppose litigation, if you're going down that route, as you say, four years, that type of uh, strategy doesn't scale to create the change, uh, the pace of change that needs to happen to help these communities. It's so certainly an intensive model, right. Okay, so right. you went down a sort of a, took a different, a different route. You right. took a, a slightly different path. Do you want to just talk a bit about the, the structure of sure. the council? Mm-hmm. So Accountability Council works to amplify the voices of communities to defend their human rights and environment as a result of these international financial flows. And we use three different tools to do that. So the first tool is lawyering. It's back to this original tool that I worked on developing, but from a different perspective. So the community lawyers that we employ at Accountability Council, we have some in San Francisco, some in South Asia. We're building an Africa team. And those lawyers work only at the request of communities. And they work to help them identify how the harm that they've experienced is as a result of an international financial flow, what rules may have been violated, human rights and environmental rules, and then helping them develop uh, complaint strategies for how they might want to bring a complaint to address those violations. And so we've had nomadic herders in Mongolia, farmers in Haiti. Um, We've had all kinds of, of very disparate types of people with a lot in common, which is that no one asked them. These projects came in from abroad, decimated their lives, decimated their ecosystems, and they were working vociferously to fight back at a local level, and they needed these international-level tools Mm -hmm. that our communities program provides in order to change the situation and get some justice. So that's really the goal of the communities program. And then the second thing we do is is work on the level of these complaint offices at the policy level, recognizing that the, the complaint offices that we use, these ones tied to the World Bank and the other regional development banks, tied to international financial flows, they're, they're, only all, they're as, pre-existing, these... Uh, well, we're working on creating them. So the first uh, one was created back in, in the mid-90s at the World Bank, this inspection mm-hmm. panel, and that's why I wanted in on the ground floor to see how it worked. Yeah. But then we've been instrumental as Accountability Council in working on making sure the existing ones are fair and effective. That's the first goal of our policy department. But the second goal is identifying gaps, where there is a, a massive amount of money flowing out of a system without a way for people harmed by that money to complain about it um, and to receive remedy. So an example of that is we've worked really hard on the U.S. Export-Import Bank, which is a U.S. Uh, development finance institution that until very recently had no nowhere for people to file a complaint. Um, also in the U.N. system, we've been instrumental in creating new accountability offices where massive amounts of money are flowing out. So those are those are examples of the gap filling. And we can talk wow, about impact amazing. investing, yeah, which yeah. falls in that category too. Um, but then the last thing we do is we translate those lessons from our cases back into policy so that we can make sure we're not getting the same case over and over again. We want 
want to see systemic change. And this is the scalability of the model, too, is each of these cases we take on are emblematic. And they're emblematic such that we can see the potential for a policy shift or a shift in practice to a make sure that future communities aren't, aren't experiencing a policy shift within the financial institutions yes. or within the organizations? Within the financial institutions, uh, right. right? So we're able to change the policy of these global institutions, which is the key that's to really doing a scalable change. Like, say, systemic and lasting that's change. Right. That's, that's right. That's amazing. And then we have a research department, which we can talk about, too, when we get to... When we get to Wow. Technology and tools. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. That's a great overview. I mean, you've got accountability is the core to your name. How do you deal with that in your name when you've got your business model is about philanthropy and you've got a, an accountability to your donors? Um, I think I read that you've developed an interesting qualitative theory, um, a certain system of systems of a change. theory of change? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could you just run through that? I think that's, uh, I find that quite an interesting sort of model and I've got a question. Absolutely. About how you scale that. Yeah, our theory of change we developed as a board and a staff group a couple years ago, really taking some implicit assumptions, making making them explicit assumptions. And then we tied all of our goal tracking and activities internally to our theory of change to make sure that every single thing we're doing is for a reason and that we're going to be able to measure and evaluate whether we're achieving progress toward our theory of change over time. So, for example, in one of our cases, if, if one of our goals is to meet the objectives of a community, because it's not our objectives, it's the community's objective, um, to getting into a dialogue process process about restoration of clean water, that's something directly tied to one of the objectives of our, our, our theory of change, which is that communities have the right to take part in decisions affecting the future of their, their lives and environment. So that's one of the ways that we can really track that impact. And then we share, um, and this is key to accountability, is transparency. They mm-hmm. go hand in hand. And so on our website, we have documentation of everything we've ever done in every, every case, that, with the exception of some that raise security risks. Um, but as a way of showing, being accountable to not only the communities we serve, but also to our donors and the public and to the institutions that that are in our ecosystem of work um, to show exactly what we're doing, why, and how it all fits together. Interesting. You've applied technology quite in quite an innovative way as well um, as yeah. you've sort of progressed along your journey. Tied to that accountability is obviously you talk about sort of publishing information and data. Mm-hmm. So data is obviously core to it. Mm-hmm. How have you progressed with technology and mm-hmm. helped you satisfy the needs of the donors, empower the communities, and help drive change? Absolutely. We realized pretty early on that data was going to play a key role, especially in the policymaking, that we needed to provide evidence, data-driven evidence, for why a policy recommendation we're making should come to bear. So as a group of lawyers, before we hired any data scientists, we started doing that uh, early on of, of tracking all the policies of the accountability offices, how they measure up against each other, and then starting a database of all the complaints that have ever been brought. And a year and a half ago, we really professionalized that. We hired a data scientist who himself is a software engineer, and he's created this unbelievable tool where we have a Python-powered database now of every complaint ever filed to every accountability office. So we can look at what are the energy projects in East Africa uh, that have ever received a complaint from any institution. Uh, and we can see what are the common themes coming up about forced displacement or um, indigenous people, for example. And so if you're an investor wearing an investor hat and you want to use this database, one of the things you might do is, is look for what's the sector and the area uh, that you're looking to invest in. What are all the problems that you've seen um, in the complaint database to make sure your due diligence is going to focus at least on those issues to avoid harm. So it can be a preventative tool. It's also an incredible way for communities and their advocates to understand what the likelihood of success of using a particular complaint office is. So it's it's a way for um, communities to have more information, for policymakers to have more information, and for investors to have more information 
toward a more just system. Mm -hmm. So we've really systematized that through our research department over the last year and a half. When you said that for the communities to be able to understand the, the impact of individual complaint officers, so it's not an even playing field. Certain officers will have more, be more receptive or be less receptive. Yes, and what's the that's right. And their policies differ. And so what one of the things we're able to do with our database is as we compare the policies of each, it's the, the rules governing how they, they work. As we compare those rules to one another, we can see are those rules impacting the outcomes of those accountability offices? So if you're a non-transparent accountability office where you're not sharing information, um, you're making decisions in the dark, is that going to impact whether you come up with fair results? And now we can measure that and we can show. Can you give an example? Well, and one of the things that's been the most interesting statistic that's come out of our, our database just very recently, we've been able to document that if you have an international NGO, a non-governmental organization, or a civil society ally, partnered with a local community bringing a complaint. So if the community has support, it's three times as likely to deliver a result. Now, we're working on that now. We're taking that data and it's actionable data because we're able to show that, first of all, that shouldn't be the case. Mm -hmm. Anyone who files a complaint should get a fair shake, yeah. right? So on the policy level, we can look at how institutions need to be more accessible to communities and make sure they can ask the right questions if they weren't, the answers weren't offered initially. Sometimes that's one of the barriers to communities who face huge hurdles in bringing these complaints. And then as, as an advocate, we can work on providing greater support, greater legal services, greater um, just community advocacy support to communities, a greater number of which clearly need that support to be effective. So we're working on it from both ends, but that's a great example of our, our database able to show change that's needed. And in terms of proximity, you're not actually on the ground in these communities. We are. We are. Yes, we're at the request of communities. We're working as partners with them. So often there'll be um, a directly affected community that is working with a local non-governmental organization um, or even a regional group. And so we'll have frequent trips that our communities team takes. Um, often it's to help with initial fact-finding, to help with an initial visit of the accountability office. And if there's a mediated dialogue, that takes place in the village, which is a really Im important feature here that people are, are in their home environment as they're negotiating. And so we would accompany the communities during all of those of those trips. And how do you um, rate or rank the, sort of the importance of these? Because you must have so many requests coming in mm. from different regions. And so We do. We um, are really overwhelmed with requests. And we have a set of criteria we use to, to evaluate if we have capacity, which is itself uh, too, too rare <laughs> that we have enough capacity to take on new cases. But where we do, we'll look at a request to see if it has a likelihood of making change for the people who are filing the complaint, so at a local level, the likelihood of systemic change, and then obviously just the ability to communicate with the local people and the ability to use an accountability office. There's an available tool. Um, but that it's that likelihood of making systemic change that's really our strategic angle on which cases to take on. Um, and importantly, we decide maybe uh, there's an indigenous people policy that's never been tested at a certain institution. That might be a reason to take one case versus another. Or there's um, an accountability office that's never had a complaint. We want to make sure it gets one. Um, so that might be another reason. But importantly, it's the second factor. The first one has to be the likelihood of change at the local level mm -hmm. so that we're not making policy points at the expense of local communities. And that's really at the core of our, our model and our mission. And how are you viewed inside these institutions like the World Bank, inside uh, the United Nations and 
other sort of regional sort of banks. Well, like if, Asian if banks. they're listening, maybe they can tell us in the comment section. <laughs> one. Um, we, we have a variety of types of relationships with the institutions and their accountability office staff. I would say the more sophisticated and longstanding the institution, generally the better the relationship because they can see over time the value we bring to a process. So we support communities to do a, a, pr- a pretty extensive amount of fact-finding before they file a complaint. And that's of enormous benefit to an accountability office because a lot of the work is done of documenting, really exhaustively documenting what happened to the community and how it addresses whether there was a policy violation of the institution, what that that link is. Um, So that's an enormous service. And and I think a lot of the accountability offices do appreciate that we bring that Um, and the ability to help communicate. And it's the organizing. So communities are often very disparate in terms of where they live, how they live, how they communicate. Literacy uh, is a big issue. Language barriers are a big issue. Um, And gender impacts of a project on women in particular mean that often they're the most marginalized Mm -hmm. and have the the least capacity at the stage of a negotiation to participate unless they are seen as the target of the negotiation and and explicitly brought in. So we, we do all that. We pay attention to all of those issues and make sure that communities are organized in a way that allows them to surpass those barriers and participate on equal footing in a negotiation with an institution or a powerful corporation. So I'd say the more sophisticated the institution, they're going to appreciate that those are really incredibly Mm -hmm. valuable roles if they want to get at a successful result. Not everyone wants to get to a successful result for a variety of reasons, so that therein lies some some nuanced relationships that we have. Um, But I would say overall, I I would hope that we're seen as a respected and fair partner. In terms of tracking the impact over a longer term? Do you go back five years later, six years later to see if there was lasting impact, whether it be a water project or whether it be some infrastructure project that was happening mm-hmm. and see how those communities have evolved? We do. And this database that we've developed is, is one of the ways that we track this. Uh, we have, of course, all the complaints ever filed, but the ones that are uh, ones that Accountability Council has personally participated in, uh, we have a way of, of measuring the impact of that case. We document the impact of that case. And then personally, the attorneys who are involved often maintain relationships with the people that were their, their clients and partners over many years. Um, so we have a formal and informal way of, of tracking what's going on after a complaint process. An example is this case in Mexico we had where for several years I worked personally before I had a set of lawyers working with me when it was a one-woman show um, in Oaxaca. And those are communities that were able to stop a project that was going to be taking their only source of clean water away from them. And as a result of the that project, that community stayed organized in a way they never had been before. And they made demands on their local municipality where the company had promised a road and then never built it. They said, well, this is actually the government's job to build this road. They demanded that of their government and the road is built. Um, so there's a, a great history in that community of activism that's really been sparked by this complaint process and it's been a pleasure to stay in very close touch with that community over time and see the progress they've continued to make. I was at an event last night, it was a new book called Winner Takes All by New York uh, New York Times journalist Anand Giridardis and he has a this is the, I haven't started reading the book yet but at the start he was really talking about the global elite's efforts to change the world uh, preserve the status quo and obscure their role in causing the problems they later seek to solve is the sort of the, the systemic problem that's facing us but he talks in terms of the solution being um, and he describes it as a, the grueling democratic work of truly changing the world from the bottom up that's it it really feels that that's what you're doing with accountability council it that is. it is mm-hmm. it is empowering local communities it's giving them sort of driving activism it's challenging the status quo and the sort of um, organizations and multinationals running roughshod, roughshod over communities mm-hmm. and damaging sort of the water supply infrastructure breaking up communities mm-hmm. have you 
built a network of like-minded organisations as well around your around the accountability around accountability council. They're also doing similar things. We we have we had uh, in 2013 this realization that there were enough of us now that were working specifically on these these accountability offices. That uh, some worked full time, some part time, some just as part of a campaign for forestry or um, for forest preservation or indigenous rights. But enough people existed that we could form a network. So in 2013 we created this international advocates working group. It's got 140 members now from all over the world. And we meet regularly so we can share lessons about our cases. We can work on joint policy projects, joint research. But that's just one network of part of a much wider network of civil society organizations that's way pre-existed Accountability Council's Mm -hmm. existence that we've been able to plug into working on global rights, resources, responsibility uh, at the very grassroots to the international level. There's a pretty sophisticated web of relationships and networks. And I think to that point um, that Anand makes in the book, it's really so true that unless you are involved in communities, asking communities what they need to improve poverty, uh, to, to see better respect for their human rights. There's no substitute for the global elite deciding what they should be getting or doing or needing in their lives to make change. Um, It's just an inappropriate replication of kind of the domination and hegemony that's led to many of the problems in the first place. So it really is flipping that model on its head, going to the grassroots, asking communities, what do you need to be respected and thrive in your life? And that's what Accountability Council seeks to do. And that's the model of finance we want to see in the globe. I mean, reading the case studies on your website, a lot of them seem to be, well, most of them seem to be third world based. What is happening in sort of more developed countries where they're also under-resourced communities, uh, sort of disempowered communities that probably need your help? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, this, this form of finance that is extractive is not unique to the developing world. It's not unique to poor countries. Um, We have poor populations within every country. And the United States is an extreme example of the disparity between the rich and the poor. Um, We don't not work in the United States, but our model really focuses on international financial flows as creating this opportunity for raising a voice. Mm -hmm. Um, So for the communities we work with, if there's an international bank or institution funding something happening in the U.S., then we can get involved. And we've had a case in West Virginia that's a coal mining example of that. Um, but we find that in the United States, there are um, so many different options that people have to raise their voice. There are never enough, and many of them are not powerful enough. But in countries where speaking up can cost you your life, quite literally, we have communities where we can't disclose on our website where we're working because the, the people who are our clients, their names are on lists of the government that if they speak up, they're going to be arrested, tortured, detained. And they know that that's a credible threat because it's happened to their neighbors, their colleagues, their friends. Um, so when you, you think about what's at stake for these communities, yes, the U.S. has incredibly disparate um, sets of populations working on really intractable, seemingly intractable problems of equity. Um, but hopefully we can continue as a society to work toward at least the goal of people being able to speak out about it in a way that's free and fair uh, so that they can demand the change that they need and deserve. Okay. The path you've taken uh, hasn't been sort of a, a path of easy choices. You've taken the harder path, tougher road. How important has integrity been to you as you've gone on your journey? I think integrity is, is kind of integral to um, how I see decision making. 
so um, it, it's also makes me reflect that I really don't feel at many points I feel like I've really taken the easy road I get to wake up every day doing what I love and so many people don't have the privilege of saying that um, and I've just been lucky that uh, my own integrity has been reflected in, in the organization I've had this privilege to build and that I've been able to build this organization with a team of other people who are like-minded um, not that we all have the same perspectives on everything but that we all have at our core value listening and a respect-based approach is the core the core principle that guides our decision-making. Um, so it's been a privilege to lead this organization and see it grow with people who also share that value. And how does that link into your funding model and remaining sort of independent? Mm -hmm. Because it would be mm -hmm. easy to become a, you're a non-for-profit. Right. Um, with the, the talents and the skills that you've got, there must be times where you're tempted to take on sort of RFPs to pitch for work that you know you could deliver and generate yeah. funds that could then be channeled into the, right. the community projects that you're supporting. One of the first questions we get when we come into a community, no matter how sophisticated or educated the community member, doesn't matter if they never went to elementary school or have a graduate degree, where do you get your money? That's because people understand that money corrupts. So uh, that's an organizing principle of how we fundraise is through individual donations and, and foundations through philanthropy uh, as the primary source of funds to be as least conflicted as possible vis-a-vis -vis the corporations and institutions that are involved in our work um, and the governments as well. So we don't accept government money. Um, and, and the reason is we really need to be an independent voice. Uh, we do have employees who work at corporations who submit matching grants. So we have a small amount of employee matching grant donations, but the decision-making of our organization is, is very firmly rooted in a principle of independence as the, the primary commodity in which we trade. And when you started, you were supported by Echoing Green? That's right. They're mm -hmm. a, a local New York-based yeah. foundation that funds all over the world social enterprise organizations. And we were one of 14 recipients of the Echoing Green Fellowship in 2009. And it was the, the very first funding I ever received from anyone <laughs> to, to start Accountability Council. It was my entire salary and rent and travel budget and uh, program fees for that entire first year. And it was really completely game-changing. And are they using you as a mentor for up-and-coming social entrepreneurs? Oh, and vice versa. I mean, the, the new social entrepreneurs are mentors of mine. I mean, it's really an astounding group of individuals who are part of that network. And Equine Green does a wonderful job of keeping everyone in touch over the years so that the I am still in touch with people who received their fellowships in the early 90s. Uh, this organization's been around long enough to have a real community of practice around social entrepreneurship. That's it's pretty incredible. Just going to jump back a little bit. Now, you're talking about the, so the way that the impact on policy at the financial institutions. Mm -hmm. What do you think the impact has been in terms of the, the policy or the attitude of large multinationals? It must be increasingly aware of your existence. It is. We're, we're in regular touch, I would say, with uh, w with every development bank, for sure, with many export uh, promotion agencies, export credit agencies, and many um, large banks and institutions through our policy advocacy, or they've heard about us through our cases. Um, and what's been interesting with this impact investing initiative is we've been able to, to have a whole new set of conversations with the private sector, um, particularly asset managers with big impact funds, who are really interested in learning from the mistakes made by private finance. Um, in using a, a completely extractive model of dealing with local communities and trying to, to do better. Um, so when you're making decisions about which entrepreneurs to fund in a community-based um, social enterprise that will be for-profit and then part of an impact fund where you're going to deliver a profit for an investor, what's the relationship between that community and the investor? And that's the conversation we're having uh, so that investors know that there is not only a benefit from um, 
but a real legitimacy that comes from having a place for someone who's harmed by your operations to file a complaint, to be able to, to remedy that complaint, and for the investor to learn about it. And so that in the future, they can incorporate that kind of decision making into their due diligence to make sure communities are partners, not objects in their investments. Are you connecting these communities together around the world? We have creating a network where they can actually sort of reach out one country to another, obviously accepting there are language barriers yeah. between some. We have this this working group that I mentioned, this International Advocates Working Group. So at least at the regional advocate level, uh, some of these grassroots community organizations, uh, not necessarily the directly affected people, but the, the organizations do gather together and we've provided support to make sure some of them can um, travel to be to be together. And it's a, an incredibly powerful uh, platform for people to communicate. And we also have our 10-year anniversary coming up in exactly a year, and we have a dream of bringing some of those directly affected people together to celebrate on a stage and, and talk about some of the shared challenges and victories that they've they've had over the course of the last 10 years of the organization. So I'm, I'm delighted with that vision and that uh, excited by the prospect of that happening too. So the 10 years must have gone fairly fast for you, but you must have encountered quite a few personal challenges along the way and made personal sacrifices. How did you remain motivated and undaunted? Because you're constantly facing another challenge, another yeah. complaint. And, yeah, and the, it's been a busy time. I, yeah, I, I got married, had three children, and lost my father all in the course of the last um, nine years. So it's been an incredibly um, just roller coaster of a ride from the beginning to the end. Um, Carter Fields is my, my husband, who's been a partner through it all. He was a videographer on our first trip to the Peruvian Amazon. Um, he's been been a backbone of this organization, a silent partner, <laughs> if you will. Um, and my children really have kept me grounded in the joy of daily life when the challenge of, of running an organization, of fundraising for an organization, and just the emotional drain of working on pretty intense human rights issues um, can really get to you. But having an outside perspective, and children certainly bring that, um, has been a gift. And you're taking on a, a pretty moment, monumental sort of challenge called 0290, I believe, yeah, coming right. up soon. Exactly. I've, uh, Which is what date? I love challenges. So this is the ultimate challenge. On October 11th, I'll be participating in uh, 29029, which is... I'm not quite sure if the show will go live before, scaling, before that date. Yeah, but. it's the equivalent of Mount Everest, which is 29,000 feet, and it's going to be... Um, up a mountain in Stratton, Vermont, 17 times in a row in 36 hours, and I'm doing it to help elevate the profile of Accountability Council um, to to spread the word, literally from the mountaintops, <laughs> about what we're doing, um, with the idea that there are 17 people that we've identified as an organization whose voices deserve amplifying. So we're going to be highlighting one for each of these laps that I'm going to be attempting. So I'm, I'm in the middle of training for so that, just too. just you it's and a, other social entrepreneurs? There are a wide variety of, I think there are 400 of us who are going to be doing this, of all walks of life life um, from all different industries and sectors um, and will be gathering. Presumably that will be filmed and people will be able to track progress. I believe so. Yeah, it's going to be yeah. very exciting. Okay. What's the, do you know what the web address is or the, if there's a Twitter profile? Yeah. If you go to accountabilitycouncil.org, uh -huh. we have a link to it on our donate page uh, and there's a climbing for justice page there that you can follow along with not only my training, but to learn about the honorees and the race itself. Great. Well, definitely go there. Um, I want to talk about creativity. Um, it's, you've, I mean, you're constantly facing challenges, solving problems. How has creativity played a part in your journey, and where do you go mm. to access that side of your mind and to help you come up with unexpected solutions to predictable problems? Thank you for asking that, because I think oftentimes, especially lawyers, uh, feel like you put away the creative side of yourself when you go to law school, and then it never comes back. So um, I was a 
semi-professional singer um, for many years before going to law school and sang to make my way through college and and law school. Um, And so returning to singing with a trio that I still have and still perform with at times has been an incredibly rewarding opportunity to get completely outside of of my legal and professional world. Um, And then the other part of creativity that I love is through this hike, this challenge, uh, climbing for justice has allowed me to really get into nature, to do these hikes, these very long hikes and, and runs. And I'm fortunate to live in San Francisco where the natural beauty is a source of inspiration and creativity. Because Darwin had this famous thinking path where he would take these walks in sort of isolated moments Mm. of the day and Mm -hmm. ideas would come to him. Do you find that happens when you're on your your treks? It does. It's so freeing. It allows you a way to see the world in a new way. And I so appreciate that. It's a perspective-taking place for sure. Okay. Uh, Ray Dalio talks about success as being dreams plus embracing reality plus determination will equal a successful life. You've seemed to have achieved success already in this nine approaching 10 years. What would what will success look like 20 years from now? Well, I, w- I might make one adjustment to that quote, which is you have to, to dream, embrace reality, but then not accept reality. Uh, and I think that's the key to accountability council and what we want to see in the next five to 10 years. Um, is really looking at uh, this this systems change of having it be unacceptable for there to be any backsliding. So we're creating a baseline of best practice of what it means to be a legitimate institution with financial flows impacting communities around the world. You have to be fair. You have to be um, an effective voice for letting people raise a grievance and being responded to. And I think we can achieve that. We've made huge progress in, in creating you know, there are now dozens of accountability offices. When I started my career, there was one. So we've seen a remarkable history uh, just in the last, you know, couple decades. So I think in the next decade, we're going to see a, um, a number of private financial institutions start entering the fold of creating better accountability for their financial flows. And I think there's going to be a global movement behind it. And we'll be a small part of it. It's going to be exciting to follow. Daniel Eck from Spotify uh, said that his mother gave him the security to do what he always wanted to do. Um, he also says that there's nothing that is impossible. You just need to dare to do it. Uh, you talked right at the start about uh, your upbringing and how that affected your sort of view of social entrepreneurship and social justice. Um, how did it affect your sense of your own creativity and self-belief and the, having the willpower to actually take mm. on this, cr- cr- for some would see, a, a crazy impossible challenge? Oh, well, willpower is one of my favorite words because it, it, it embodies my mother. <laughs> She's a, a woman who was the first in her family to go to college and was um, uh, and is the most determined person I know. So she thought beyond um, where she grew up to what a different world might be like. She was a social change agent during the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement um, and a peace activist and um, an LGBT rights activist and raised us as um, understanding the role of U.S. foreign policy in the world. And she's a clinical psychologist, but on the side is it just this mind-blowing activist. And so she taught me and, and my father, too. They were very much built from that same cloth of, of desire to see a different world and then work hard to change it because if you don't, no one will. Um, and so I was raised very much in that ethos that um, the world as you see it is your responsibility. Wow. Sounds like you need to clone her. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. America do with more women like that. Mm-hmm. We talked about the sort of the monumental challenges you've taken on, um, empowering the powerless to take on these powerful multinationals and organizations financing them. 
Donald Rumsfeld, actually, because this is a bit of a, I don't know if this question is going to be relevant or if there's an answer to it, but I'll ask it anyway. So Donald Rumsfeld was famous for saying, um, using the term unknown unknowns, those complex, uncertain situations or challenges that are completely unexpected, but we, but we never knew to look for them. Have you encountered in your journey any of these unknowns un- unknown unknowns and how did you deal with them? Ooh, well, I will say yes. And the difference between me and Donald Rumsfeld is that um, you shouldn't act on them if they're going to be at the expense of people's rights. Absolutely. And uh, Rumsfeld could have learned that one a little bit earlier, would have saved a lot of pain. Um, but I, I would say that as you as you build an organization that works with people in their lives and the environment, the founding principle of the unknowns is to follow the lead of the people who do know. Mm-hmm. Because you can, you can know what you don't know, but you have to know that there's someone who knows better than you, um, if that's the case and you're feeling around in the dark. And I think that's that's another organizing principle that we use at accountability councils. If we don't know, ask someone who should. Yeah, <laughs> so well, seeking that into perspective well. is one key thing. Mm-hmm. So just to sort of wrap up, you have achieved some amazing things and progress, and you're obviously on a journey to achieving even greater things. For people that are starting out with their own goals, ambitions, and missions, that whether they be social enterprise-driven or not, what would you say to them and guide them in what talents, skills, tools they need to take on their impossible? Um, Funny you say that because the board chair of Accountability Council just wrote a book on exactly that that topic uh, called Social Startup Success. And one of the things she talks about is just uh, among many is don't be afraid to test things and fail. And I would say that that is a a fantastic piece of advice because um, fear of failure can cripple cripple you and it can cripple your creativity. Um, And so when I started Accountability Council, I had no idea whether it would work whether I could raise any money at all, whether I could make a living for myself out of it, let, let alone support a whole group of now 16 of us who are part of this organization to, to make change. Um, so it was a really risky endeavor. And I think believing in yourself with the idea that if you fail, it's okay um, is, is the key ingredient. Okay. And what's the name of that book? It's called Social Startup Success by Kathleen Kelly Janice. It's just out this year. It's All right. Read. Well, that, that, that leads nicely to our free offer, book offer we have for our listeners, which is the listener asked the best question, the best three questions. We'll give them a copy of the book that you recommend. So there it is. That's the book. <laughs> there we go. Well, thank you very much, Natalie. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you for your time. I know you're busy. Thank you. It's been a, been a joy to be here with you. Thank you. And if people want to reach out to you on social media or on the site, you've given the site address. Accountabilitycouncil.org. And we're at Account Council on Twitter. Great. Love to see you there. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps us reach more people. Just go to iTunes, Acast, Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you listen to subscribe and rate. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. Have a good week.